Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Presiding over Paul's trial in Corinth wasn't just any old Roman governor. It was Gallio, friend of the Emperor Claudius and brother to Seneca, the writer, orator, and senator the emperor's wife brought out of exile to tutor her son, Nero. Teaching team member Caleb Click finishes the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled Tender Words for Fearful Sheep, which covers Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 18. And while you're turning there, I just have one really brief announcement. Uh, As most of you know, uh, we periodically will do this podcast called Digging Deeper uh, that we always connect with whatever sermon series we're in. And it's a chance for us as a teaching team to to get together and talk about things that maybe we we didn't get to in our sermons to answer questions uh, that maybe people raised after the sermons and, and just to overall do exactly what the name of the podcast says, to dig deeper into the word of God and to talk about what it means for us as God's people to know and to love this Savior, Jesus. And we, we got to do a really fun conversation. Uh, it was Jeff, myself, and Jimmy Kim, uh, just I think it was last week, uh, on our series in Acts. And that podcast dropped last night. And so if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, uh, we would encourage you to. It should be a lot of fun. Uh, but this morning, uh, as we come yet again to the book of Acts, uh, we are returning to this figure who first showed up in Acts chapter nine where we started our series just a little over a month ago. This guy named Paul that on the road to Damascus, Jesus grabs hold of and then unleashes like a gospel hurricane on the Western world. I mean, Paul, Paul meets Jesus and suddenly everything changes. He's preaching the gospel to anyone that will listen to him, to Jew and to Gentile. He is planting churches. He's going from city to city And all the while, Paul is facing very real, very violent at times opposition. His life is being threatened. He's been mocked. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's been starved. He's been on long journeys. And yet Paul never once, never for a second, seems to be daunted in any way, shape, or form from his task. He's like those old commercials for the Energizer Bunny. He just keeps going and going and going and going until we get right here in Acts 18. There is something that happens in Corinth that takes this man who seems daunted by absolutely nothing and it makes him wonder if this ministry is something that he should stop. It's a good reminder that the power that we see at work in Paul's life, it was never in Paul but instead in the God who called Paul and who called us and who even today is speaking to us in his word. And here's what it says. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse one. And after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, 
Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one, no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that, Lord, as we come to this text, would you give us eyes to see? Lord, we're distracted by so many things. Our hearts, Lord, are pulled from you in their affections. There's things that we love that cloud our judgment, that cloud our understanding, And Lord, we ask through your spirit, would you cut through all of those distractions, all of those things? Would you take hard hearts and make them soft? Would you take wounded hearts and would you heal them? Would you take weak hearts and would you make them strong? And would you do all this by driving us into the arms of the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ himself? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Paul, Paul's afraid. And fear is threatening to do in Paul what prison and beatings never did is threatening to still his tongue. That fear, that fear is familiar, isn't it? I mean, Paul has this very specific calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but that call to bear witness to Jesus, both with our lives and with our words, that's a calling that Jesus has laid on the life of every single believer, including you and me. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves and we hear that call, there is everywhere fear standing in the way. You know, I, I, remember, I remember in college, I was on my first beach project, and part of a beach project with Campus Outreach, if you're not familiar, is they do this thing on Saturdays called beach evangelism. And it basically means this. They would equip you with a small, short presentation of the gospel, and you would get a partner, and you would pray, and then you would go out on the beach, and you would start to try to find people to share that presentation of the gospel with. Now, I know even just sharing that, that some of you just broke out in hives. For me, it did exactly that. My, my friend and I, who both of us, who funny enough, ended up in vocational ministry, at least for a while, uh, we found ourselves walking down this strip of beach in Clearwater, Florida, And looking around and thinking, like, where can we find an inn to somehow break into all these little groups of people so we can share the gospel with them? And we're walking down the road, you know, we're talking to each other about our testimonies. We're talking about the wonders of Georgia football. We are talking about music and the sky and the beach and how much fun this summer is going to be. And before we knew it, our quest to find people to talk to It had lasted for several hours, and while we had talked about all sorts of different things, the one thing that we had yet to do was this. We had yet to talk to a single person about Jesus. 
And the time had already come to go home. And the reason that it happened, it was very, very simple. Both of us, though we probably couldn't have admitted it to each other, both of us were scared. We were afraid. That fear, that fear permeates our lives, doesn't it? There's that fear when we look at that calling to bear witness to Jesus, that fear that our labor will be in vain, that somehow we're inadequate to the task or that whatever words we muster up, they're never gonna make any difference whatsoever in somebody's life. There's that fear that if we fulfill that calling, that maybe we'll be in danger. That if we open our mouths and we are faithful in our following of Jesus, that there will be very real consequences, maybe consequences that we are just not quite sure we want to face. And then there's the fear that sits underneath them all. That fear that maybe we are completely alone. That Jesus, he may have saved us, but now... He has left us in the midst of this broken world with all of its hostility to walk by ourselves in our own power and in our own strength. And as we look at all of those things, there is a fear that threatens to still our tongues. Acts 18, Acts 18 says Paul shares every single one of those fears. Because why else would Jesus give him this vision? I mean, Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, he writes to the church in Corinth and he says, when I came to you, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. But when I showed up, I was not a mighty man or a powerful man. I was a man who was shaking and weak, broken and bruised. There was nothing about me that looked powerful at all. I was the epitome of weakness. That's what I was. And the reason for that, I think it is simply this. It is because of what Paul experienced in that city, but also what he had endured before. There's both where he is and what has gone on in his past. First, there's where he is. You know, in Acts 17, we left Paul preaching in the city of Athens, the intellectual center of the world. And there's this part of us, as modern readers and listeners, who when we think of cities in the ancient world, Athens, Athens seems like the big city in Corinth. Corinth is a smaller one. But if you were to go back in that time period, those roles are completely reversed. Athens is a city of about 10,000 people. Corinth, on the other hand, according to scholars, is somewhere between 200,000 and 750,000 people, 60% of whom were slaves. A small city this is not, and not only is this a bigger city than Athens, but it is also a wealthier and more politically powerful city. Corinth sits at the nexus of trade routes from the east and the west, both by land and by sea, which means at the time Paul walks into this city, the wealth of the world is quite literally daily pouring into the streets, and everywhere he looks, there are statues and buildings being erected, all of them testifying to the fact that this city, it is prosperous in ways the rest of the world can only dream of. And on top of that, where Athens is simply a town in a larger province called Achaia, Corinth, Corinth is the city that sort of functions as the capital of that province, of that province. 
which means that whatever decisions are made in Corinth, those have implications for every other city in the region. This city matters. And not only is it a proud and a great city, but this is also a legendarily immoral city. For 400 years, the phrase to play the Corinthian was a euphemism for fornication. You think about the phrase we say, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's kind of how people thought of Corinth. This is the place you went to if you wanted to engage in things that weren't okay in other parts of the world. When Paul walks into that city, there's a temple overlooking the city from on top of a mountaintop, a temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And every day, that temple would send a thousand prostitutes down into the streets below. That's the kind of place Paul's walked into. I mean, if you were looking for a spot where it's going to seem, at least on the surface, by human eyes, that the gospel is probably not going to find a welcome reception, I mean, Corinth, Corinth is kind of it. What would a city that is so full of pride and immorality, what could they possibly want with the message about Christ and his cross that stands in direct contradiction to everything they love and value? Paul, he walks into this city and he has to be going, what am I compared to this city? I am weak, I am broken, I am poor, I am not powerful, and those are all the things that they prize. What possible good can I do in this city in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? But not only is there a problem presented in where he is, there's also this problem of what Paul's already experienced. It's hinted at in the promise of Jesus in the vision. He says, no one will attack you to harm you. I was listening to a podcast a few days ago where a guy from the Barna Institute who does a lot of uh, uh, like surveys about things that are going on in the evangelical church and he's quoted the statistic. He said, because of the battering that pastors have taken in the past year about things like race and politics and COVID and a whole host of other things, something like 29% of pastors have seriously considered not just leaving their churches, they've considered leaving the ministry completely because they are not sure they can take anymore. Paul, Paul, I think, is reaching a place like that. Paul is a tough man. I mean, you think of all the things he's endured. You have to be tough to take a beating and then sit in prison and wait for more. But as every one of us knows, tough, tough men have breaking points, don't they? And what do you think you would feel if after you had endured everything that Paul has, you entered into a city that is bigger than anyone you've gone into before, and the very first thing you experience it is opposition so strong that you quite literally have to walk out of the synagogue, shake off your garments and say, I'm done. I've been faithful with what I can. Your blood be on your own heads. Paul, Paul knows there's probably more coming. And there has to be this piece of him that is going, Lord, I'm not really sure how much more of this I can possibly endure. Paul, Paul's afraid. He is afraid that his labor will be in vain. He is afraid that he might yet again be in danger. And he is afraid, he's afraid that maybe, just maybe, in this massive city, he is completely and utterly alone. 
Acts 18 is a reminder that there's no such thing as superheroes in the church. There's just people. People of weakness and of fear and of brittle faith who in the face of opposition are often tempted to abandon their calling. But it's also a reminder of this precious truth. There is a faithful shepherd who speaks tender words to fearful sheep and who speaks to them a better word than their fear who comes to them in each and every place where they are afraid and he meets them with his promise. Look at what Jesus says to Paul. He says first, you are not alone. Verse nine, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? For I am with you. If you ever came into the click house uh, you would discover really quickly that we are up to our eyeballs and little girls. They are just climbing off the walls everywhere you can go. And one of the most fun things about being a father of little girls is they will uh, run like a pack of wild banshees around our backyard. They, they will clump together, especially the, the three older ones, the younger ones, you know, five months, so she's not running anywhere. But the other three, they will run like wild banshees through our backyard. They'll jump over the creek, they'll pick up stones and sticks and wave them at each other and throw them. And sometimes, as a parent, you're, you're sitting up there watching this thinking like, oh my gosh, they're going to die, like you're afraid for them. But they feel nothing. They are in a pack, and in a pack they are fearless. There is nothing to be afraid of. They are gonna run, fight, do whatever it is they wanna do. But what's always funny is that as soon as you isolate them, if they come in for dinner and you say, Alice, you left your shoes down by the creek again, which is something that happens all the time, can you please go down there and grab your shoes and then come back? You will see this kid, who just moments before was jumping over the creek without fear, you'll suddenly see fear in their eyes. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what question's going to follow, don't you? Daddy or mommy, will you please go with me? In their fear, they want someone that is not only bigger and stronger to go with them. They want someone that they are confident loves them to go with them. Because in their presence, they feel safe. Jesus, Jesus says to Paul, when you entered into the city of Corinth, did you not realize that what you had that in even greater measure? You were never alone. You were not alone when you entered the city. You are not alone now. And you will never be alone again. Do not be afraid. I am with you. You know, we... I think sometimes make this mistake when we hear those words and we think maybe that's true for the saints in the past. Maybe that was true for Paul in this moment, but for me, I'm not sure that same promise has been made to me. And what Acts 18 would say to you is, no, this is not just a promise for Paul. This is a promise for the people of God. Because what is it Jesus said in Matthew 28? He tells his disciples, 
every single believer, you are to go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And what is the promise he puts at the end? Behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. When Jesus is looking at his disciples in John 14 and they are afraid of what is going to come, they're fearful when Jesus tells them he's gonna die, he's gonna be crucified and he's gonna go away. Jesus comes to them in their fear and he says, do not be afraid, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I am going to come to you, I will send my spirit who will be a helper to you. You will not be alone. And here is what should banish every single fear in our heart. It is not simply the promise, but it is the identity of the one who makes it. What makes my kids feel safe when either I or my wife Mallory walks them down to the creek, it's not just that I say I'll go with them, it's the identity of the person who is holding their hand. Who is making this promise to us? It's the one who loved us when there was nothing good in us. It's the one who was willing to give his own life for us when we had nothing but sin to give him. And it is the one who having conquered sin and death and hell now sits at the Father's right hand and intercedes for us at every moment of every day and is not just promised to send his spirit but has truly done it. In such a way that as God's people, we are now temples of the living God. That is the one who has made this promise. And if he is with us, then it doesn't matter what our circumstances are. It doesn't matter what we're facing. It doesn't matter what we are experiencing. We are never, ever, ever alone. You are not alone in your marriage. You are not alone in your job. You are not alone in your school. And even when you are sitting on your deathbed and preparing to pass into glory, even there, Jesus says, I am with you then. You are not alone. Do not be afraid. And then Jesus, he adds yet another promise. You are not alone, but also you are not in danger, for I protect you. Verse 10, I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. You know, I mentioned earlier that Paul, because of his previous experience, he's been traumatized, but at the very same time, Paul is facing a very real danger. When Paul enters this city and he preaches in the synagogue, he immediately experiences opposition to the point that he has to leave the synagogue, shake out his garments, and pronounce a curse upon them. But did you notice where Paul plants the church? Does he plant it in a place where you could kind of let tempers die down and emotions recede just a little bit? No. Paul plants the church in the one place that is probably going to incite conflict more than any other, right next door. I mean, I've been to enough football games to know that when you have a contested game, you don't want rival fans sitting right next to each other. They tend to get upset. Paul has to know. He has to know right here there is conflict coming and if they already were so opposed to me they drove me out of the synagogue it's going to be worse when they come back. 
It has been violent before. It will possibly be violent again. Lord, I am not sure how much of this I can take. And Jesus speaks directly to that fear. And he not only speaks to the fear, but he shows himself faithful to that promise in every single way. In the very next verses, in verse 11, it says he stays, he plods along, he continues in his calling for a year and six months. And then in verse 12, it says this, but when Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, the thing Paul was afraid of, here it is. And they brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, we need to stop on this just for a second. He is not referring to the Jewish law here. He's referring to Roman law. The Jews are dragging Paul in front of a Roman tribunal, and they are trying to make the argument that while Judaism is what's considered a protected religion under Roman law, which means they have certain rights in their worship, Christians... Christians are something else entirely. And thus, they are not a legal religion. And if they are not a legal religion, they are not a protected one. Which means, if this ploy works, suddenly Christianity is not going to be protected as it spreads across the Roman Empire. And Paul will be in even more danger than he was before. And because it's not just a Jewish problem now, it's a Roman one. And yet notice what happens. Verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, before he gets to say a word, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, Poor innocent Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. And they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio, Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Did you see what just happened? I mean, I love this part of the story because here is the moment Paul has been so afraid of. Here is the thing that could derail all of his missionary plans. Here is the thing that can take the fledgling little church and threaten to snuff it out. And what happens? Jesus, through an unjust judge who makes an unjust judgment, Jesus protects the church. I mean, Gallio is not exactly a likely defender of the gospel, is he? He's a man who in the space of just a few words reveals himself to be a hypocrite. He says, on the one hand, if there had just been a vicious crime, guys, I would have done something about it, but there's no vicious crime, so, you know, go on, deal with yourselves. But then what just happened in verse 17? He sees a vicious crime. Sosthenes gets beaten right in front of him, and what does he do? He does nothing. He doesn't care. When, when he thinks about the tribunal, this case that's been brought before him, does he hear any witnesses? No. Does he seem to understand what they're actually debating about? No. 
He thinks it's just about words and names and silly little details when really they are debating this. Has God revealed himself in human flesh, in space and in time and in history, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? That's more than a name and a detail. Gallio misses all of it. He just can't be bothered. And yet Jesus Through an unjust man making an unjust judgment, Jesus is faithful to his promise to Paul. And not just to Paul, but to the church. Spurgeon, the old uh, British evangelist, he once commented that you will often see Christians facing very similar circumstances respond in very, very different ways. On the one hand, you'll have people who in the face of their circumstances, they will lament and cry and say, I do not know how I can endure this. I don't know how I can bear up under any more. And then on the other, you'll have Christians who maybe are facing even worse circumstances. Maybe they are facing death itself. And yet, where the other Christian was trembling, they are confident even in the face of death. And Spurgeon says, what is the difference between these two? Why is one so fearful and the other so confident? And he says the answer is simply this. One of them thinks that they have to carry their troubles on their own. And the other, the other knows that there is someone who will carry their troubles for them. There are burdens in this world that if you and I try to carry them, they will snap our spines. But if we know that there is one who will carry those burdens for us, then suddenly those burdens, they seem like nothing at all. That's the promise Jesus gives us in Acts 18. You know, we, we are so afraid. And I can speak for myself here. I am so afraid. When I open my mouth to share the gospel, even when I preach, of what the consequences might be because of what I say. There's fear that people won't like me, fear that people will reject me, fear that people will be angry with me as a kid who was always desperate for acceptance as a a child to suddenly go like, I could say something and you might really think I'm the worst. That's terrifying. That's a burden I don't wanna carry. And it can make me tremble with fear and yet there is in this text this precious promise to fearful sheep. You don't have to defend yourselves and you don't have to fear opposition of any kind because there is one who has said to you what he says in John 16, that in this world, you will have tribulation. Suffering's gonna come. You're not gonna get to skip out on it. You don't get to escape it. You may be given a reprieve like Paul is here, but it does not mean this life will be easy, but you have this. Jesus says, take heart, why? for I have overcome the world. There is one who comes to his sheep and says, cast your burdens on me. You are not in danger, for I will protect you. And then Jesus adds one final thing. He says, your labor It is never, ever in vain. You know, we look at Corinth and we look at our own cities 
We look at our culture and our nation and the world around us and it can be very easy to look at all those things and to see all the obstacles to the gospel and to think there is absolutely no way that the gospel is going to bear any fruit here or that he could possibly use somebody like me. You know, I, I find myself all the time sitting with my girls around the kitchen table and we try to do family worship, which is for us is like a five minute process of I read some scripture, try to share like something from it and then we pray together and it's almost always chaos. Like they're more interested in the deer outside the window than they are in daddy and whatever he's saying. But there's this piece of me that sometimes sits there and goes, man, if I, if I can't answer the question of a four-year-old, what good am I to the 40-year-old skeptic down the street? If I can't, communicate to them these truths in a simple enough way that they can understand. What, what use am I anywhere else? And Jesus, Jesus yet again speaks directly to that fear. He comes to Paul who's feeling all of those things, that inadequacy, that worry, that sense that maybe his labor is in vain. And he says, Paul, here is your hope. You were never the missionary. I am. There are many in this city who are my people. You look out there and you can't see them. They are hidden from your eyes. You don't recognize them. They look like enemies, but they're mine. And I am the one who is pursuing them, even as I pursued you. And I am the one who will claim them for myself. And I am the one who will bring them home. Do not be afraid. You belong to me. You are to plant and you are to water, but I am the one who gives the growth. That's the promise that we have from Jesus. We're not the missionaries, Jesus is. We just get the privilege of being used by him. And you see Jesus keeping that promise, even as he did his promise to keep Paul from harm, right here in the text. If, if Paul was not so clouded by his fear, he would see that all around him, Jesus is pursuing his missionary work. In the very first verses, when Paul walks into Corinth, who does he run into? A believing couple from Rome, Priscilla and Aquila. And you might go, well, what's so significant about that? Well, this. One, they're already believers when they show up in Corinth. Two, when Claudius kicked out all the Jews from Rome, thousands of them, by the way, it was because, according to the Roman historian Suetonius, there was fighting happening between the Jews about this figure whose name may sound familiar, Crestus, a phrase that most scholars think is just a misspelling of Christ. The Romans didn't understand what was going on, and so they put Crestus down, but it was Jesus. Which means what? Paul's never been to Rome, but Jesus has. And Jesus is already at work in another city far away. The gospel is outpacing Paul's missionary journeys. And Priscilla and Aquila, they are living, breathing proof. And God, in Jesus Christ, he has not just beaten Paul to Rome, he's beaten him to Corinth too. Through the person of Priscilla and Aquila. When Paul starts preaching, he immediately sees fruit. He has a prominent Gentile, Titius Justus. He has a prominent Jew, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, which I'm sure went over really well with the synagogue. And then, 
It tells us in verse eight that there were many others who believed and were baptized. And then there's my favorite part of all. Verse 17, there's this tantalizing little detail. You see this poor guy named Sosthenes get the tar beat out of him, who apparently is the second ruler of the synagogue. Now you go, why is that tantalizing? Because guess who we find as a brother in Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse one? Sosthenes. Which means, if they're the same guy, which it would be a pretty big coincidence if they're not, if they're the same guy, it means that God, through Paul, converted not just one ruler of the synagogue, he converted two. Jesus, Jesus is saying, you plant and you water, but I, I am the one who gives the growth, and I make the dead come to life. Do not fear. One of my favorite missionary stories is of this old Scottish Presbyterian named John G. Payton. And Payton is famous because in the, the mid-1800s, he felt convinced that God was calling him to take the gospel to this little chain of islands in the South Pacific called the New Hebrides. And anytime you're gonna take the gospel to a new culture, I mean, that's always an intimidating task especially to people who don't speak the same language, don't have writing and all those kinds of things. There's all sorts of obstacles to the gospel. But there was an obstacle in the New Hebrides that was a little bit bigger than that. The people who lived there were cannibals. And I don't mean in the sense of, you know, the, the Europeans came to the island and saw people that looked more primitive and assumed they were cannibals. I mean the last two missionaries who came to those islands and landed on the beach were immediately killed, cooked, and eaten in front of the ship that dropped them off. Cannibal cannibals. Which means missionaries weren't lining up to go back. <laughs> and, and when John G. Payton said, I'm going to go to the New Hebrides, people, says, people literally said to him, you will be eaten by cannibals. And he said, yes, and you will be eaten by worms. I don't care. And he was so convinced that he was supposed to go, that he packed up not just his stuff, but his pregnant wife and took her. I mean, imagine that conversation. I don't know how that went down. He takes her to the islands of the New Hebrides and lands on the shore, and lo and behold, they survive. But then the trouble Jesus warned would come, it follows. His wife and his now newborn son, both of them die of tropical disease within about four months. And John G. Payton suddenly finds himself completely alone on this island, surrounded only by people who are now convinced they made a mistake letting him live when he landed on the beach. And night after night, John G. Payton, he is running for his life because the natives, they are trying to find him and they are trying to kill him. He's got a lot of incentives to leave. But John G. Payton, he stayed. Not just for a few years, he stayed for decades. He brought modern medicine to the island. He brought education. He equipped them with trades so they could begin to interact with the world outside. He took the scriptures and he translated it into their language. 
And every day he would preach the gospel and when he would see anyone converted, he would immediately seek to equip them and then to send them out as missionaries themselves. And though for decades there was very little fruit, when John G. Payton finished his 40-something year ministry on those islands, here was the final result. The entire island of Aniwa, the main base of his operations, the entire island of Aniwa had come to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And 25 of the 26 islands in the chain of the New Hebrides had now received missionary outposts both because of John G. Payton's work and that of the native missionaries that he had raised up. Now we look at that and we go, how in the world is something like that possible? Acts 18 says the answer staring you in the face. It's because the same Jesus who was with Paul, he was with John G. Payton. And here is the hope that we have this morning. That same Jesus, he is with us. Assuring us that no one will attack us to harm us, not in an ultimate way. And that our labor, though it may often look fruitless, it is never in vain. You know, we, we don't know what fruit our fumbling words with our kids around the kitchen table are gonna bear. We don't know how God's gonna use our experience of opposition as we bear witness to Jesus with our friends and our neighbors and our classmates and in our cities. We don't know anything that's gonna happen. But we do know this. We are not alone. And we are not in danger and our labor, it is never, ever in vain because the same faithful shepherd who spoke tender words to fearful Paul, he speaks those same words to us even this morning. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for there are many in this city who are my people. If you are a Christian, you are Christ's and he is yours and he is with you. Do not be afraid. Gracious Father, we're so thankful that we have a God who meets us in the very place of our weakness, who comes to us in our fears and Lord doesn't reject us or spurn us or condemn us, but instead Lord tenderly cares for us in those broken places and strengthens us for the task at hand. Lord, would you meet with us this morning? Would we go from this place, or maybe as those who entered this room, weak and broken and fearful, but Lord, would we leave in the confidence of those who know we have found one who will not only be with us, but who will carry our troubles for us, and who will take our labor, the labor that is done in the name of Jesus Christ, and who promises us that labor, it will never be in vain. Would you work in and through us now? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.